Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Yes Sir HR. As usual, you are with Mark and... Yes, it's me, Mark, Dennis. Not changed my name yet. Not yet. <laughs> and how has the week been then? Um, pretty um, idiosyncratic really. Um, doing a project possibly... Some work on that. Um, at the tidy the garden up. The, the summit is coming to an end, so I need to pull the water. Comes and I have to go down with five coats and three jumpers and a hat and gloves to do it. Um, so um, yeah, I've been been idiosyncratic. Been following obviously the um, the UK um, politics, and um, uh, I feel good about Rishi taking on the job. He doesn't need to do it for the money, so he um, he's doing it for commitment. So fair play to him. It's a hopefully. <clears throat> so, yeah, okay. So, I think today, uh, in our 53rd episode, I thought we'll do something a little bit different and let's talk a little bit about uh, data driven decision making. Uh, and this is not going to be an episode where we talk about what is data and learning analytics so much, but really about why data uh, is going to play an important role, especially in what we advocate as our evidence-based teaching and learning. So maybe then you might want to start us off with uh, what are your thoughts initially with the idea of the growing importance of using data to make teaching and learning decisions? Well, I mean, let, let's unpack this term data. You know, we talk yep. about information, knowledge, wisdom, loads of term bits of terminology flying about. Data is essentially information about something. For example, when we do educational research, we talk about data collection. What are we collecting? We're collecting different types of bits of information. And um, when we did our research on intrinsic motivation over two or three year period, we were using psychometric tools and we were getting measurements of students' experience, their perceived experience anyway, um, on things like um, emotional engagement, agentic engagement, cognitive engagement, behavioural engagement. And they were giving rating scales on one to five, where one was obviously <laughs> not very engaged yep. um, and five was very engaged what we interested was to see if the interventions that we were putting into place if you remember it you know the autonomy um supportive style um lessons based on core principles uh lecturers using an evidence-based approach and doing evidence-based reflective practice we wanted to see um what data showed about the student experience but not only did we cl um, collect quantitative data in that sense, but we also had students working with us and they were co-participants and we would meet with them, if you remember, and um, cost me a lot of money in coffee, Mark, to be honest about <laughs> it. I think over those two years, whilst we were given a very generous budget by the Singapore ministry, students always seemed keener to me and um, a little bit more kind of vibrant when they were in Starbucks as opposed to the coffee shop, particularly if you bought them an almond croissant as well. So, um, 
so we we were getting then more kind of qualitative data you know just getting them to talk about their experiences what teachers were doing what their classmates felt about the learning the, the kind of activities they were doing and what we then do with all of this data is to start to look at well <coughs> what we were studying when we were studying does a certain type of pedagogic um, intervention yeah. or pedagogic interventions um, seem to have some positive impact on student engagement and you know their ability to learn both qualitatively if you like and quantitatively do did the students also do better in their performance um, tasks so yeah the, the notion of education being evidence-based is you know is what we're about and it's based on data the reason we talk about the things that we talk about is because data is showing that certain things seem yeah in um the majority of cases to have a positive um impact on students for example we you know we've done is this episode 53 or 54 53 Okay, right. Um, we did one episode, I think, where we talked about rapport. Now, um, there's a lot of evidence data to suggest that if, if you have good rapport with students, it's more likely that you'll get better classroom management because they, you know, they, they like you, they trust you, they think you've got something to offer. So if you can say to them, look, guys, and I'm using guys in a generic sense now, yep. um, that... Um, settle down now and do some work the, the majority of students will you know and, and this could be a conscious thing it could be a subconscious thing but the students will sort of say yeah hey chair yeah yeah we'll, we'll do some work now fair enough you know kind of thing um whereas if you don't have rapport they're, they're likely just to totally ignore any attempt at you regulating them um in the worst scenario so data is fundamental so when we start talking about learning analytics which is one of these kind of vogue terms and we can unpack what that means and uh see what kind of data it can generate and what might be useful in that data but again it's not just data per se is it it's how you interpret data and how you can turn data into uh, something actionable if, if we go back to COVID I remember looking at the news um, you know during lockdown and thinking wow um, it usually takes 10 years to come up with some vaccine for a virus and um, are we going to be in permanent lockdown intermittently you know for, for, for years and years and it seemed initially there was a lot of understanding of the behavior of COVID how it worked um but understanding it getting the data on how it worked um does not necessarily lead to a solution but without the data you don't then have the human intellect to come into play particularly when you've got experts and we know experts are much better than novices at solving complex problems that over time and um it was nice to see global cooperation uh and what a great result. And isn't it a shame that we don't continue with this um, global um, cooperation on curing things like cancer and other horrendous diseases rather than um, billions of dollars on blowing up people and uh, machinery? It's, it's, it's a bit of a paradox. Anyway, that's yeah. me picking so, in, right? Yeah, so, so let's, let's bring this back uh, in to, uh, to be a bit more of a sharper focus, and that is on learning uh, and I'm going to quote, and I will put the link to the 
article that we are quoting in the show notes. But uh, I'm just going to read this, which I thought was quite interesting. And that is, teachers and school systems have long collected and used data in some form or another. Whether reading scores in a grade book to track progress and calculate final grades or examining standardized test scores to measure district-wide achievement. However, today's technology has greatly increased educators' opportunities to use data analytics to improve teaching. Now, it goes on to say that teachers can now use tools that track their student understanding in real time throughout the delivery of a lesson or provide them with the results of assigned homework before planning their next lessons. Now, that is the thinking behind it. But my question here would be is, um, and, and I think you rightly pointed out, it's not just about collecting the data, but it's about how you interpret it. So maybe my first question is, do you think this is something worthwhile in worthwhile doing for teachers because they're already so busy? Now, we're expecting them to improve their ability to not only identify correct sources of data, but then make the correct interpretations of learning. So, or should we just go back and rely on what I would call instinctive teaching? Your thoughts, then? Okay. Um, I like the word instinctive um, teaching. It's a bit like it conjures up images of giving squirrels nuts and they kind of instinctively bury those nuts. They seem to have a capability to remember where they, yeah. they bury and dig them up. So the word instinct is kind of, when we use it in human terms, it has multiple meanings. I think we need to clarify that because what we do know <clears throat> is that when you get very good at something, Mark, uh, like yeah. we're getting very good at doing these podcasts, aren't we? You know, with And we work situationally. And the reason is that um, you do develop a kind of what's referred to as an unconscious competence. Now, that yeah. doesn't mean that you are perfect at doing something, but whilst the activity remains within a kind of a manageable zone of variation. In other words, each week we come on air and you introduce the um, the podcast channel. You say, I'm Mark. And one of these days I'm going to say I'm Ricky Gervais or Uncle Tom. <laughs> Uh, you know, so be prepared for that. In fact, I won't do it now because it won't be funny, will it? But the but the but, but the point is, we have a a um, an understanding that we have a topic. We know something about that topic because you know, we're, between us, we've got what I'm just trying to think here uh, over 60, 70 years of experience in it, working in educational systems. So we should be able to and we've been fortunate enough to uh, have an opportunity to um, do a lot of research and work with thousands of teachers and obviously thousands of students. So we should be able to talk intelligently about such matters. Now, invariably, like you're suggesting now, there are new technologies emerging and um, how useful are these technologies to support the learning process? But before we go into that, let, let's go back to a point that, is made in the article and you you talked about we've always used data but what's exactly. kind of interesting a lot of that data was very idiosyncratic and this is worrying and it would often be communicated in the staff room orally i mean i can remember um teachers saying, oh that that kid he's trouble um like oh well you know well, well, he's, you know <coughs> Uh, or another kid oh he's not doing his own work and, and various things that these might be um, to some extent, um, some measure of accurate representation. In other words, that this child is not 
cooperating with this particular teacher for this subject at this time of day it doesn't necessarily mean that that kid is trouble per se right because yeah. we know we, we work with teachers and we work with students and some some students seem to um, comply and work well with some teachers and not others and there's reasons for that and there's some evidence-based reasons and it could be partly what the teacher does and also partly the perceptions that that um, student as of different types of people um that kind of thing so we've always used data what we're now talking about is the ability to deal with big amounts of data in more quantitative objective terms at the level of description in other words 50 percent of the students have not answered question three correctly and based on their response it appears that the main reason is a misconception or a lack of understanding of the concept or bits of both in some cases. And what that means is that we are in a position to say, right, can we now address the misconception, the knowledge gap? Do we have an example? Is there a pedagogic intervention? <clears throat> yeah. And we can do this much, much more precisely. So there's no doubt about that. And, you know, one of, one of our core principles of learning that we have spoken about many times is, assessment particularly formative assessment particularly very focused feedback that's focused on the task itself a cognitive process uh, a misconception those kind of things so you've now got technology instead of the teacher having to find a time which they don't have and particularly today which is even more difficult because of the amount of work pressures <laughs> to sit down with that, that kid and say well hold on this is you get questions Right. What were you thinking and model their thinking? And sure enough, if you've got the time to spend, you're going to work it out, maybe even more uh, richer than with the machine technology. <coughs> but the reality of it is teachers are struggling increasingly yep. to get through the duck. And um, that, I mean, in, in England, um, on the news this week, it was saying that nine out of ten schools in the UK we're talking about are going to run out of money. There was one master who apparently is taking light bulbs in the school. So, um, we don't have to, so they don't have to turn on the light in non-essential areas. So um, if we're talking about an education system that seems to be underfunded, and that, again, this is going to vary from country to country, area to area. But the, 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 what we are seeing globally, I think, is a lot of teachers under a lot of stress in terms of the amount of work that they have to now negotiate um, to um, to be saying, hold on a minute, well, let, we've now got to learn how to use these technologies. We've got to be able to um, make these real-time interventions. Um, it's just another straw that breaks the camel's back. So I'm just throwing that out as a um, yeah. piece of evidence, a bit of data. <laughs> yeah. So, we, you know, we're being evidence-based here. We're trying to look at different data and say, well, hold on, can we can we say that this stuff you know that the use of data is a positive development in teaching if certain conditions apply and that's why i think the conversation might go okay so um then let's maybe then uh figure out and uh let, let's start from a from a more uh base of encouraging people maybe to relook at the importance that data can play uh, and I think, again, these articles provides some tips on uh, how 
to use data in education. And I thought maybe we might want to talk about this uh, a little bit uh, because data-driven decision-making in education does, as you rightly pointed out, transform classrooms. Uh, it actually dramatically, and I'm reading uh, verbatim of the article, dramatically improving teacher responsiveness to students, more importantly, saving teachers' time and ensuring instruction is relevant. Now, if we go with that base and how the article suggests that we make use of data is as follows. So let's try and dissect each and every one of these examples. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. So the first one it says is use data to find out about what happened in the past. Now, educators should look to past data to get a baseline understanding of students. Past data indicates what skills students have learned and in what areas breakdowns have occurred. This information serves as an important roadmap for teachers as they plan what skills to teach next and in what areas students might need its extra help. Now, as an educator yourself, looking at this first comment, using data to find out what happened in the past, how would you do it? How would you find out what happened? Let's say this group of students that you have, what would you? What data points would you be using to find out about what they did in the past? Okay, um, I'm going to answer that question. <clears throat> Uh, you know, analogies are useful, aren't they? Um, and for those who like football, and what I've noticed that more and more ladies are playing football. So yep. when we talk about football, we're not just appearing to be biased towards the intelligent male that prefers football as compared to other less meaningful and um, challenging sports. So we've got to get that little dig in. Now yep. then, a heady owl. Um, who's taken over at Newcastle. Um, they Newcastle are now fourth in the uh, Premier League. Um, and um, most of the players that he's got, yes, he has had money to spend. And yes, he's bought in some quality players. But the players that he had have massively improved. And this seems, and this is both qualitative and quantitative data. Um but they're scoring more goals, they're making more tackles, they're not, they're conceding less goals. So what he's obviously done, he's gone in there and found out what these players can do, both at a technical level, but also find out what their personalities are like, how they feel, what's bothering them, you know, what are, let's understand the players. Now, let's just now jump back into education, that when you take on a class of students, there will be, data exists. There could be data from other teachers who had them previously that may or may not be accurate. There'd be demographic data about their performance. Uh, they've not done very well at this subject. They seem to be slow learners. There's, there might even be some labels stuck on them about some special educational need, which may or may not be accurate as well. And um, the, the teacher then has got to look at this data and say, well, I've now got to verify um, this um, data across these various sources. And that takes time. And one way that you do that is you give the students some, some tests in the subject area. You test their key conceptual knowledge. Um, you speak to them. You see what kind of motivational status they have. They might say, oh, I don't like geography. I hate it. Always have hate it. I don't want to do any work. I'm no interested. Don't care if I found that kind of thing. So you've got to do all that finding out. Now, what we do know is when teachers are able to do that, they're likely then to be able to get better, if you like, a better psychological climate in the classroom, the rapport, the students recognise the teachers making an effort that affects their mirror neurons. They're more likely to be responsive. The teacher is you know, using positive language, smiling, you know, which is a very powerful uh, 
towing into personal communication from a cognitive um, science perspective and gradually then can tailor the instruction around. So that's one big point is find out what the existing data is and validate it as effectively and efficiently as possible. So, yeah, it's a massive important thing. You don't just collect data. You look for the data that is significant and you... Um, you seek to verify the authenticity of that data because some of it could be spurious. Right. Okay. I think that's a that's a fair point, and that is also actually uh, talked about uh, in point number three, which is understand what data can and can't tell you. We will come to that, but let's look at number two first, which is use a mix of quantitative and qualitative data. Now, what uh, this article suggests is educators should use a mix of data types to evaluate student performance. Using data obtained from an end-of-unit exam alone misses many opportunities to get useful information about students' strengths, weaknesses, and preferences. Now, this is something that I, I, I find a bit iffy, but I would love to hear your thoughts. So, what it also suggests is simple formative assessments such as thumbs up, thumbs down, check-ins can help teachers get a quick reading on student comprehension and can provide information about student engagement. Now, is that actually considered data? This yeah. Thumbs up, thumbs down thing. Is that actually considered, or does it have to be formalized in sort of like numbers and uh, trends and charts and bars and graphs right. and Cronbach uh, Alpha and all that? Ah, that, then we're into a really interesting one, Mark. And I'm, I'm going to use an analogy. I'm going to throw this at you. Like, um, people get married, right? Yeah. Something. Not everybody. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. Yeah. Now then, let's think about it. When you are, if we, if we, if we went back to, and this this could interest a lot of people, couldn't it? If you went back to when you were thinking about getting married, so all of a sudden, I mean, look, let's be honest about it. You know, when you're seven years old, you don't think about getting married. All right, you might you might have a you know um, a crash on Jennifer Eccles or carried a satchel. You know, that's a bit older. But what I'm saying is, you do, you're not generally thinking about seriously getting married. But suddenly and it often happens when you're in your you know your 20s or whatever <coughs> other people have got married and people you know granddaddy's saying on grandma oh when are you going to get married son or have you got a boyfriend or girl or whatever you know that kind of thing so you start to then think okay well maybe but then you've got to start saying well um who, who might I marry? Now, I could be sitting there and saying, well, I wouldn't mind marrying Garby Muguruza. I wouldn't mind marrying, um, you know, um, um, you know like, like I follow tennis. So I'm thinking of, you know, attractive tennis players, uh, uh, you know, subjective, but there you go. And then a Ribikina, whatever. But I'm not going to meet them. And they wouldn't be interested in marrying me. So, you know, we have to look within... A, a domain and very often people end up marrying people that they work with or people in the same street you know unless Alice moves away sort of thing um, so what <laughs> data can we collect well you know we can actually talk to them um, that, that's one thing go on dates and things like that we can talk to other people about them can't we we can um, kind of ask people well what were they like when they were kids you know you know did, did they do this and do that we we collect all different bits of data some's qualitative some's quantitative the truth of it is that probably most people get married with <laughs> very limited data we could do with better learning analytics in that area maybe that could be um we could do a podcast um channel just on that kind of area yeah a, a lot of you know if you like dating agencies now are using that kind of thing um 
but it, a lot of it relies on honesty. In other words, like you know, you you fill in a form, and um, are people really saying what they are like? And do people even know what they're like? So it's there can be dodgy, dodgy bits of um, things about data that you know, we we it looks like it's clean and it's objective, but maybe it might not be, and that's a worry with data. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's that's a very important point. Uh, and again, I go back to trust uh, yourself as an educator. You know what to what to look out for. Uh, so when I so how I'm interpreting this is use a mix of quantitative and qualitative data would be is know what kind of data you want in the first place. What is it that you're trying to find out? And I think that alone already stumps quite a number of teachers, not knowing mm-hmm. that actually with this uh, amount of uh, data that is available, it's a matter of putting it together and then interpreting it, which is actually point number three, which I think is going to be important, which is understand what data can and can't tell you. And I think this is we need to spend a little bit of time talking about this. Uh, and what the article says is teachers must assess what data can be used for. Certain data can help answer one question, but not another. For example, a teacher may examine data that reveals a particular group of students come from disadvantaged backgrounds. This may help explain why students struggle academically in general. However, it cannot explain why a student did poorly on an exam. Okay? So understanding the ways in which data can and can't be used allows teachers to diagnose problems more accurately and then respond to them. Now, how would you then respond to someone or to a teacher that says, actually, I don't even know where to start and I don't even know what kind of data I should be looking at and I don't even know how to interpret it? Then? Okay. problem because I didn't a few of the things that you said. Um, well, let, let's try, I'm going to try to pick up on what I think he was saying there is that, yeah, um, yep. this is problem generalizations. It's, it's, it, we, we know from early sociological research that children from certain types of backgrounds tended not to do so well in school in various things. You could locate it down to parental involvement with teaching them language skills, Like, you know, all those things. But the danger with that is that you, you then kind of generalise down to the individual. I mean, the, you know, the sad thing about health education, uh, it's right. I mean, if we talk about smoking, uh, that um, whilst across a big population, that um, people who smoke quite heavily with other things being constant, and that's a very difficult thing to actually do in pure research anyway, um, you're more likely to get certain types of... Um, serious health issues and which one is lung cancer unfortunately i've had two friends who never smoked who got lung cancer very early on in life and died of it so there's we've got to be careful with the data that we don't then see it as some kind of deterministic thing um I've been working with students over a number of years and I've had students who say, oh, I don't want to do this subject. I hate English. I'm not interested in it at all. Uh, did all this boring stuff on Romeo and Juliet. This worthless. However, at that point in time, that, that, that student is not doing well in tasks. Equally, that child might be coming from a working class background, maybe some other um, demographic factors. So you can say, oh, well, given this child's background, given socioeconomic status, given um, it, the, the current perception of reality, it, it's not really worth 
doing too much um, with this child. Um, the concept of reframing is massive in people's lives. And this is where um, that you have a belief in something. In other <clears throat> words, you believe um, that you're not very intelligent, that schools are um, badly run, teachers don't care, all these kind of things. Um, but it's a bit like, say, a religious conversion. I've never had one. Or meeting aliens. At the end of the day, look, it's a big universe. Um, there could be billions and billions and billions of creatures of, of various elks dotted around. And if there's parallel universes, well, who knows? Um, the bottom line is I've never met an alien. I've met people that look like they should be sent to another planet. Um, but... Um, if I was visited one and it, you know, and I wasn't asleep and I hadn't drunk two, two or three bottles of Baron's beer or whatever it was, and it it felt authentic, I, I start to believe that there is um, um, extraterrestrial beings at the moment. It's I think there probably is, but um, isn't sufficient to prove that to a level of yes, I'm hundred percent convinced that there's um extraterrestrial life so if we go back into educational context we've we've got to look at yeah what is useful data to me there's two bits one is what has the student done in terms of their academic work so far what is the level of performance um what are what is the student him or herself um got to say about that performance and then from that you start to work um from those two bits of data if the student is saying i'm not interested i don't care i'm just here till i leave school i'm gonna do an apprenticeship in this don't want to do it i'm not gonna do it and i don't care what you say and you can't make me do it then you know you've got a certain type of problem and that is perception now can you change that yeah well sometimes you can and that's where you focus if the student seems to be very keen and wants to work but are making lots of errors then then you've got more of a pedagogic issue and how might you then design the instruction in ways and that's where uh, the data learning analytics can come in because you can give that those students tests to deal with and give them that rapid feedback and build that um essential conceptual understanding so um yeah. you know that that's two two if you like examples of, of the way i would look at different types of data and see what potential meanings i could drive from those and now i might um focus my uh, you know right. teaching toolkit um to address it Okay, so which brings us back to the next one, which is uh, so I I think you 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 bring up a very fair point. I don't think we can expect anyone to automatically suddenly become a data expert. Uh, I, I'll be very honest. I myself find it a bit overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, am I am I able to do it? Probably, but I I will consider. I will put myself more in the old school of thought, like. I'm more of an instructive or more instinctive type of teaching. I don't necessarily have to collect data to be able to tell whether a person is struggling. But having said that, I've, I have seen the, the value of collecting data that pinpoints exactly what is it that people do not understand. So the next point that what, uh, we, we can take a, what we can take note of or to take into account is really to keep an eye out for unexpected trends. So instead of reading this uh, out, uh, uh, I'm just going to put a context, contextualized 
statement. And then I want you to see if you can share a story of how you have actually uh, brought this principle out to life, which is keep an eye out for unexpected trends from your own uh, experience as a teacher. So the, the contextualizing statement is many factors outside of a teacher's control come into play that can influence student success. For example, students might be responsible for getting their younger siblings dressed and off to school before showing up for their own classes. Now, any troubles along the way could mean these students arrive to class late and miss a quiz. Now, when teachers are aware of such issues, they can find ways to help students work around them. Now, uh, rather than refusing to allow the student to make up the missed quiz, the teacher can make accommodations for the students, sometimes asking simple questions such as, why do you arrive late every day, can provide the information teachers need to make personalized adjustments. Now, using that as a context then, is there a story that you can share about how you have noticed an unexpected trend that turned out to be something different from what you initially thought it was? Well, I mean, yeah, when you say unexpected, it's only unexpected because you didn't expect it. <laughs> Somebody else <laughs> might, have, might have expected it. You see, look, um, when, when I was working in Singapore, Mark, that what I noticed um, that generally students are more hardworking than what they are in many other societies. And there's reasons for that, okay? And we you know, we could talk about that at length. But uh, occasionally you would get students who did not turn up on time for class or did not do their work. Now, yep. to me, um, I can take that as a personality factor. In other just don't care about extra and you know whatever and the lesson's going to be boring they don't make it but equally i found that some students when i said to them guys look uh, you're coming in late and you're not disrupting the class but is there you know is there anything you can tell me that i can help you with and very often they would say things they've got their um, elderly grand that they have to take to the doctors and they've got to pick up their little sister some of them have got very um challenging lives and um they can't always um, have that luxury of um, having uh, you know, <coughs> help from parents and somebody to drive them to you know to the to the polytechnic, and they don't have to worry about taking the um, the grandmother to hospital. So, to me, you know, expect the unexpected. I think is the is the answer that. And equally, not just about external factors, but internal factors. I, I worked with students who did not like doing anything to do with communication studies until uh, I taught them strategies how they could get dates. And all of a sudden, they were totally interested in communication. And then I'm, <laughs> I was able to pull them into, well, you know, apart from uh, having the gift of the gab, uh, it helps if you can actually write quite well and um, uh, to to know more about things, whether it's how to um, get dates or other things that you might be interested in. Uh, it helps to read well. And I was able to build a, a reading, writing and interpersonal curriculum up to the level that most of them got O-level, 50% um, got O-level uh, by choice, but, but only because there was a reframing. So... Always expect the unexpected, but equally, don't be too disappointed. And this is the sad thing for teachers. If you are um, really killing yourself, you're putting on all the hours to try to differentiate with different students. <coughs> Some of them just don't do it. Don't necessarily, don't always take great credit, but equally, um, um, 
don't necessarily take too much blame if you put in a really uh, authentic attempt to work with students and they simply don't buy in at all. Um, it's that's life, isn't it? Yeah, understand. Okay, so the next point, and thanks for sharing that, by the way. Uh, the next point here is a uh, suggestion to help you with your data-driven decision-making for uh, teaching and learning is to use a variety of data tools. Uh, and the, the article goes on to say that data-driven decision-making in education has never been easier. I quote, has never been easier with the advent of new technology. Now, I would argue that while it does make it a bit more convenient, I would still go back to the initial point that you need to know what kind of data to collect. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely, yeah. You've got to know that. And we're... Now have fantastic computing capabilities. I mean, it's just like comparing the human brain with Google search. Um, the human brain will take in about four bits of information at best. Um, type Jack Russell dog in Google, and you get hundred, you get a million responses. So the computational power of modern e-tools to deal with a lot of data and to give you lots of useful data possibility suggestions or things to think about um it is massive but the teachers have still got to have time to learn these tools remember the project that's been going on at sp um with that to be able to use a, a dashboard and to use learning analytic tools so that as students are doing their quizzes and doing their work you're able to diagnose problems and um and deal with it in real time even though people bought into the concept and it makes perfect sense if we can look let's let's be honest about it. wouldn't it be good if when you go to the doctors that they can diagnose exactly what's wrong immediately accurately and therefore say to you look we're going to use this treatment that treatment and this is the survival rates for this given your age given your this given your that uh, and that's where medicine's going isn't it so um uh, that, that that that's a very positive thing um but they've still got to add the time, I think, to buy into the concept that there is a more professional model of teaching that they should be doing, just like doctors now do that. They're not just walking around with bottles of whiskey and sores, are they? Um, but they've got to have, they've got to work in educational institutions and educational systems that make that type of learning culture one a priority and to make sure that there is the management of resources and time for that to happen. And it goes back to what Michael Fulham was saying, remember, in our previous podcast, that there's got to be changes in terms of the management of teaching professionals and and the kind of environments that they work in. We can't expect them to be doing more and more and more because it gets to a stage where everything is equal to everything else and the thing that they do is the thing that doesn't get them into trouble and that may not be um quality teaching it may be missing some administrative point or having a parent complaining about some entitlement issue or whatever and yeah it's it's a big it's a bigger problem but the yeah, learning analytics the use of it the use of data thoughtfully all of those things are potentially very positive things if used thoughtfully yeah okay so i think that's a very fair point so uh take note folks uh while there are many data tools that we can use and it's useful i think really start off with a plan 
what exactly are you trying to collect and for what, uh, and then be able to use that tools to maybe then help you with the analysis. Again, I just want to emphasize, because this is also for me, to remind everyone that we are not making everyone uh, win the Nobel Peace Prize for, I, I suppose, educational research. But it's really about looking at what kind of pieces of data can help maybe help you give you a little bit of an insight to how your students are learning uh, and then also giving you the confidence to pick the correct interventions and that is what we are all about which is to try and make our interventions more evidence-based so i hope that's a fair statement yeah absolutely i mean there's so um there are things as, as fulham was saying a week ago there's things to be potentially optimistic about and those those two things if we go back to um what Fulham was saying, one is to have the science of learning, a more evidence-based approach to learning. And the use of data in the ways that we're talking about today is part of that science of learning. But equally, um, there's got to be um, changes. We've got to look at what we're actually teaching. And I, I, I think we, we can't keep increasing content. We've got to be much more prudent about what content that we teach and we've got to have teachers who've got the time to talk to each other to plan lessons to look at look at data to, for them to actually have time to look at this data thoughtfully and um, you know to do critical interrogation of the different data sources that are useful for their students and then to be able to consider the range of e-tools that would be um, useful to make that a reality in practice. Yeah, perfect. Makes sense to me. Okay, so let's move on to the next one, which is devise new lessons uh, based on the data, which is actually the whole point of it, right? Now, all types of data can guide teachers in their lesson planning. Teachers must consider skill deficiencies and then see how the data can help them identify what they need and then choose the necessary interventions. So I think that's quite clear, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it really is. We've got to really look about um, the relevance of what we're teaching um, at the conceptual level and at the skill level and not just filling up a lot of content because the subject teacher likes the subject. Um, uh, there's got to be a radical reframing of curriculum content, I think. Uh, and I think that's that's a biggie. Right. Okay. So let's move on to the next one, which is uh, turn to multiple sources of data. Uh, and the contextualizing statement is to make well-informed decisions about instruction. Teachers should pull from several sources of data. And according to Dr. Steele, uh, teachers need time to engage regularly in conversations with colleagues about a wide range of data sources. Some of these sources might include student writing samples, group projects, homework, test grades, and so forth. Uh, with this data, teachers can make effective choices about skills to incorporate into a unit text and materials and activities to include. Now, I think we all know this to be true. Now, how then do you answer an administrator, and this is real and I'm not kidding, who says, oh, you cannot do too much of this data collection because uh, it gives students fatigue. How then do we respond to somebody like that? Well... Uh, there's some truth in that you can't, but um, we, it goes back to the evidence again, that um, what can, what evidence can we uh, most usefully s seek, achieve 
and operationalize within the constraints that we're working in. Yeah, I mean, we, we can't do everything. Um, it's as simple as that. But the teacher's got to have time to have conversations, to get familiar with what the what is now potentially doable. And right. um, yeah, collaboratively, um, set up the the you know the IT systems and the ways of um, um, the evidence based kind of teaching approaches that are going to be most effective um, coming out of this data analysis, um, and they've got to have. Okay, understand. Like watch medical programs, but my wife likes to watch this casualty. And I, I don't watch, I don't really want to look at kind of people suffering in hospitals. I mean, kind of um, all that much. And uh, But you you can see in hospitals, and this I think is a problem in the National Health Service, certainly in the UK, that there is just too much stuff to do. That, um, it, it, that Even with the best medical knowledge and facilities, you just can't do it. Okay. And I think problem that's in education and i think it's getting systemic across many areas of work that kind of uh, it's a little bit like what was interesting yesterday in, in terms of the politics there was some person saying look we can talk about covid we can talk about ukraine and we can talk about this the truth of it is there's just not we are now poorer in terms of stuff in if we go back to the 1960s the affluent society because oh yeah we can put more money in education put more money in defense put more money in the national health service it's a bit like having parents who've got loads of money you know because oh all right mark oh you, you'd like to do motorcycle yeah go as 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 you know 50 grand go and buy yourself a nice alley um now um well mark you know kind of um you know is is two dollars towards a bike get yourself a job and see if you can earn the rest of the money to get yourself a push bike that there is just like there's i think that there's more poverty or potential poverty in the world as the world exists now and there's too much work for many teachers in you know many schools in in many contexts and um that's that's there. Yep, got it. Okay, so I'm just going to talk about the last one before we wrap up this segment. Uh, there are two more, but uh, you can read that on your own. But what I thought was quite interesting was this one. Uh, understand when data may not be suitable. And it goes back again to what I keep on saying that, uh, you know, what data to pick and choose to collect is already a dilemma. Now add in about some data may not be suitable. And then I think it might be quite demoralizing to collect data and then find out that actually you can't draw any kind of conclusions on it. So I'm going to read the statement and then maybe for you to share a, a thought about how do we prevent uh, ourselves from falling into the, the, the mistake of collecting everything but not knowing uh, and, and it not being useful. So the contextualizing statement is data has limits. Teachers need to keep in mind that not all data analysis can be applied the same way. Even when situations seem similar, factors that are not obvious at first may result in different outcomes. So the example that is given here is, for example, a ninth grade English teacher may look over data showing how the introduction of a new peer editing method improved student essays in a college's 10th grade English class. The ninth grade teacher may assume that by implementing the same editing method, ninth grade students' essays will also improve. However, that assumption may be short-sighted. For instance, the peer editing method may rely on analytical skills the ninth graders may not have mastered. The 10th grade class might have several advanced capable of leading the peer editing, 
peer editing activity that the ninth grade class now lacks. Any number of factors can impact student learning, which means students, uh, which means teachers must be mindful of how they interpret data and consider how the how the many things that can affect results, including class structure, class size, and student age and backgrounds. Now, how do we prevent ourselves from falling into the trap of one collecting meaningless, irrelevant data? Uh, I, I, I have a thought, but I would love to hear from, from you. How, how do we prevent ourselves from doing that? Well, uh, one thing is is that we, we know some data is going to be more relevant um, yep. than other data. For example, if students are struggling with a difficult concept, and we know that this tends to be pretty generic for most students studying this subject, is then you look for um, data that tries to identify the specifics of the problem so that you can have a an innovation that is creative in some way but you you can end up collecting lots of demographic data maybe to do with gender and ethnicity that uh, may be relevant to learning processes but at the end of the day um, may not i mean to know for example that men's men's personality men tend to be more violently aggressive than women um yeah okay it's a useful bit of data but is it uh maybe in terms of understanding why there's more males in prison for violent criminals but um do we really want to use that data for um, um our kids approach the learning <clears throat> mathematics i don't know i mean it's you know you there's so much data you can gather some of which could have some covariant relationship but there isn't time to do that you just have to hope that teachers are as evidence-based as possible about the learning process are good at building relationships with students so they can get more honest and authentic responses from i think i'd kind of go that route rather than um try to analyze all the variables because you haven't got time to do that yeah, perfect. I think that you can uh, get yeah. it wrong sometimes, and you know it's a question of if you are teaching well and you've got good rapport with students and you can use these new technologies well, effectively, efficiently, you're going to get you know you're going to be overall um, pretty good, and I think that's as good as it gets. Yeah, that's a perfect way to end that segment. Uh, it's really about. Uh, Plugging away at it, uh, getting building your confidence, and then knowing what to collect. And sooner or later, I think this will now become instinctive and part of your repertoire of being an evidence-based teacher. So let's uh, stop the first part here, and let's move on to again my favorite part, which is where we share something interesting that we may have read, or an educational ad tech tool, or maybe even a video that we have watched on YouTube. Uh, or, or maybe something an epiphany that you may have had while pulling out weeds from your garden. So you want to go? You want to go first, then? Um, uh, the the thing that worries that I'm getting kind of concerned about, um, and this is um, just listening to TV <laughs> programs, is the amount of time that is being spent talking about mental health issues and anxiety and the need for people to kind of take note of these things and i'm getting worried about that because it's almost like if you talk about something long enough then um, <coughs> you, yeah. you get reality beyond the reality i was always kind of uh, this is just an analogy i don't know whether it has anything but um i've worked a lot in the philippines and you know you've worked with me in, in the philippines as well on occasion and i, I love i love 
being in the Philippines. I love the smiliness. I love the stuff. But everybody seems to have seen lots of ghosts. And, you know, I've worked at universities, talked to a lot of professors, and they've all seemed to have seen lots of ghosts. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, that's interesting. Either the, um, in, in fact, I, I had a full-time living um, domestic um uh, worker who was from the Philippines and you know, she was like a daughter and we're still in touch and I was see her when I come to Singapore and I was going to a part of the Philippines once, I won't name it and she said, to, oh you can't go there because it's full of vampires and I thought she was joking and you know, so what do you mean like, you know, is it kind of, do they have a lot of Halloween parties? She said no, there's, and she actually believes that, so what, the, the, the kind of thing that is worrying me a little bit is that the if we keep saying that this is stressful this is anxiety. There's a lot more mental illness, and you know we we we're getting caught up in a, a kind of thing that every time something doesn't go right, it's a mental health issue. So I'm getting really worried looking at UK TV and thinking to myself, are we manufacturing something here that is really uh, mimetically dangerous? Um, so that's just been an observation this week. I think basically because I've been home and I've been doing some work and um, even um, while I'm gardening, I've got you know some radio thing going on and it just seems to be a disproportionate amount of time talking about this stuff. I'm not saying that life isn't stressful and I'm not saying there isn't some increase in these problems and there's probably good data to back it up, but I just it's getting worrying a little bit for me, um, you know, the, the seismic level of it. Yeah, okay. I think that's a fair point. So, something for us to think about. Uh, yeah. yeah, so let's. Uh, I, I wanted to share something that I read, uh, which is actually quite interesting. Uh, and I think it will answer the point about uh, anxiety. Uh, and this is something that I was watching uh, on the train on the way to work. Uh, and it is about facing your inner critic. Uh, critic. Uh, and it, it, was a, it was a TED talk by, by this lady named Benny Brown. So, uh, and she made a uh, reference to a speech by Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, and it's actually quite well known. It's known as the Man in the Arena speech. Uh, and it is from uh, one of his books. Uh, and not books. I think it was a speech that uh, uh, was, was given by him after a uh, speech called Citizenship in a Republic. So, uh, unfortunately, not unfortunately, it because it was so popular, it eventually evolved to be known as the man in the arena speech. So there's one particular quote that I thought was quite interesting that I, I and, and I would like to share this with anyone who is uh, listening. Uh, sort of sort of like uh, it, it's quite an inspiring uh, quote. So uh, and I'm going to quote uh, I'm going to read it now. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. How's that as a quote? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a nice one. And it, it, it reflects a universal paradox, isn't it, really? that um, And a quote that, that that really is analogous to that is um, one of my mentors, um, Eric Fromm, who said that dying is tragic, but dying without ever actually ever lived is the ultimate tragedy. And I think at the end of the day, people can eat <coughs> Never try to achieve anything. Oh, I don't want to fail. I might get it wrong. And uh, you never really develop your potential. You never maybe achieve anything that seems meaningful. Um, but um, other people make massive efforts. And, um, yeah, they achieve things. They have visible failures and they suffer. But at least they've given it a go. It's like watching a football team, isn't it? If you're watching the team and you know, they're, putting, they're putting their heart and soul into the game, even if they're not good enough, but they're putting their heart and soul. You, you know, you have you have a feeling for them. But if, you're, if they're out there earning 200 grand a week and they don't really want to um, put, put an effort in, then um, kind of, well, where's, where's their greatness? It's not really there. So you can look at, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good human parody, isn't it, really? Okay. Yeah, so I think maybe that's a good place to end today's podcast. So as usual, if you have enjoyed today's episode, please do like and share the podcast with friends whom you think may enjoy listening to this podcast. And as usual, you can also write to us at evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. Once again, it is evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. And that's a wrap for episode 53. Uh, what's the plan moving forward for the week then? Well, actually, I'm going to a, an old place that I used to work and I'm meeting up with my editor department of about 40 years ago, who is a wonderful fella. Um, I worked with him for 12 years. He never micromanaged me. Um, a super educationist, absolute quality person. He's, um, I think, 82, 83. I haven't seen him for about four or five years now. So I'm actually flying over to Guernsey and we'll have a few days together. So um, be interesting and nice. Okay, so perfect. So take care, everyone, and we'll see you in the next episode. So take care and goodbye. And goodbye from me.